0: Church, would you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for this good opportunity. We pray that over the last five years, we have done some good things with it, and that in the years to come, we will continue to do those good things. In your name we pray, amen. You know, it it was. It was such a great idea. I think it made total sense. We liked it. We needed it. it. We felt that it met a need. We had the skill set to do it. Not really, but we thought that we did. And at the very least, we knew that we had the energy for it. And then it failed. And I'd love to say that it failed spectacularly. Like, it was a gigantic firework that that went off and then just kind of trailed out into the night sky. But that's not exactly what happened. It was more like... When you go to light a sparkler, and it doesn't go off, and you're just kind of standing there holding something that has a little tiny ember on it, that's, that's what it looked like, a failure to launch. And it's not easy to see something fail, especially when you have this great internal pressure to turn things around very quickly. That's a very human response, because we, th- we see things in, in a finite way and our grasp of time is far shorter than what god sees and when we deal with things at a human pace the chances for mistakes and failure not to mention disappointment are far higher than when we move at a sacred pace so today is the last day of our series about how we can slow ourselves down enough to get to a neutral place in our decision making that allows us to align ourselves with god's will it's called sacred pace because aligning ourselves with god's will is something that doesn't just automatically happen it takes some time it takes holy time today as you know is also the fifth anniversary of the worship service that we call the Well. And the story of the failure that I just shared with you predates the well by two years when we made our first attempt at what we called the 945 service. When you look back at that 945 service, we were not moving at a sacred pace. We were moving at a selfish pace that was somewhat rooted in anxiety. And I'm not convinced that that's the best way to launch something new. And most assuredly, it is not the best way to allow God the chance to speak life into it. So for those of you who have been a part of the Kirkwood family and for those of you who may have forgotten over the years, our church today is a very, very, very different place than it was seven, eight, nine years ago. Not only that, but the church in America was already a far different place than it was for almost all of us who had grown up in the church. And with that, it was moving at a speed that the vast majority of existing congregations in this country simply weren't prepared to deal with and still aren't. So that kind of rapid change can be very, very hard and painful, And definitely disorienting, especially if you weren't expecting it. And because it's hard and disorienting, it doesn't mean that God's not right in the middle of it, though. It could be that God is really trying to get our attention. So today, I want to talk through what we went through to get to the sacred pace that is the well. And I want to share the scripture with you that is the model that, that continues to shape the ministry in our congregation today. The first step that needs to happen anytime you're getting ready to make a decision or do something big is to consult, obviously, with your friend Jesus. Now, when we got ready to do the initial launch of the 945 service, I can tell you that the sum total of prayer that went into that was about five minutes long among four people over at the Johnson's house. And that was followed by about 15 minutes of session reflection and prayer, which is not to say that any of these folks are not godly folks, but it was that we thought it was such a great idea that we were certain God would approve. And there was not a great need to check in with him about it because we were convinced that we had done the right thing. And it turns out we were already miles and miles and miles ahead of God. When the 945 service finally came to a blessed end, which is how we would describe it, there was plenty of time at that point for prayer because we'd run out of ideas. We'd run out of energy, we'd run out of hope. And so at that point, there were these prayers of of confession of humility, of lament, of anguish, of despair. And we're just talking about the ones that I prayed. (laughs) I think people tend to make this assumption that if their pastor has gone to seminary, that they must be experts in church growth and evangelism and, and a very churchy word called redevelopment. And it turns out that I had absolutely zero education in any of those things. However, should there ever come a time that our church needs a class on the theology of sleep, I am totally on it. Took that class, aced it, no problems. So there we were. It was January 2014, no 945 service, and a pastor who really had no idea what to do next. So we prayed, and we prayed a lot and the next step in aligning ourselves with God is to start gathering facts and, and the thing about facts is that if you really want a clear idea of what's going on you can't afford to ignore them or to twist them to make your case and there were some irrefutable facts that had to be gathered at that time first about Kirkwood about about the church as it was one fact was that we were getting older and fast the average age of the congregation at that time was late 70s early 80s and pastor sung and i were averaging about eight to ten funerals a year and coincidentally we had less than eight to ten children in the church three of which belonged to us another fact probably the most painful one for me personally was that worship attendance continued to go down and down. And there are very few pastors on the planet that can see that happening and not feel incredibly discouraged. At the same time, there were facts that were coming out in the form of trends about church life in America that had to be taken into consideration. One of those trends was that there was a move away from denominationalism, meaning that in generations prior to my own, for the most part, people would be born Presbyterian or Methodist or Catholic. They would live their lives as Presbyterian, Methodist or Catholic. They would die Presbyterian, Methodist, Catholic. But my generation didn't see that reality. My peers do not hold the same kind of affinity for denominational identity. And then there was more. Again, mostly rooted in people the age of your pastor. Many kids who grew up in the 70s and 80s didn't have a choice about church. We went because we were told this is what you are going to do. But at the same time, the church took our participation for granted and with some exceptions, did not prepare us for a life of authentic faith that we could own once we got out into the real world, which meant that by the time that we got around to having kids, church then was an option, not a priority, and most of us could not see the value in it, especially in the way that our parents and our grandparents' generation grew up. And so at the same time, the parents and grandparents of my generation were having a really hard time understanding why their kids and grandkids weren't in church, and yet they didn't feel compelled to change anything about the way that they did church to make it a place that the kids would want to come. And so in the end, it ended up being a loss across all generations, and everybody felt it. So there was an attempt to respond to change in church culture about the early 1990s, and that change was called the megachurch, many of whom capitalized on, on what we call a contemporary service. Now, here's where facts start bleeding into opinions. Often, when you talk to people about contemporary services, words like lasers, fog machines, drum sets start getting thrown around. And there are people for whom those things are are wonderful and they love them. And there are other people who do not. But to say that a contemporary service is not a real service is not accurate. If that was the case, then there would never have ever been an organ or a piano in worship at any time. Because if you remember the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is standing out there with all of the people on the side of the mountain, there is no reported history of an organ or a piano on site. It took a long time for music to become a central part of worship. So guess what this means? It means that there was a point in history when the organ was the contemporary service. Now it was time for the church to grow again because a whole new generation of people who struggle to hear the gospel in a traditional setting were just checking themselves out of church. And I give you all of that background because with that kind of information swirling around at the time, it became evident to the leadership of the church that if there was going to be a future for Kirkwood, we could not continue with business as usual. And that's where today's scripture comes in jesus was going from point a to point b in the past we've looked at a map of this but jesus is here he is going here and along the way ends up out here now i don't know about you but when i fly somewhere i want to go as directly as possible and i realize that by doing that i might miss some amazing things along the way but the truth is i've got things to do and efficiency is the key By Jesus going to Sychar, he was not efficient at all, but he was intentional. The Samaritan woman was told by the world that she was such a sinner that she was so unlovable, unforgivable, and irredeemable. And the world beat her down, and they humiliated her, and they left her to be crushed under the weight of her sin. And then Jesus comes along. He went out of his way. He went far out of his way to where she was so that she could hear directly from him that she was forgiven that she was loved that she was priceless and some folks might ask well why couldn't she just show up in regular church just like everybody else and it it would be funny that you would ask that because she asked the same exact question And, and it turns out that that the world had pronounced such harsh judgment on her that she she didn't feel like regular church would be any different, that she would stick out like a sore thumb, that she wouldn't wear the right clothes or say the right thing, and because, all of, because of all of that, she just didn't even bother to try. So she hung out at the well, and Jesus showed up, and her life was changed forever. Jesus went, and he sat by the well in order to reach someone who was just simply not going to show up at point B no matter how efficient that might be. And the woman came to the well in the middle of the day intentionally because she knew that she was the source of gossip for the whole town. So she was well aware that she didn't belong because she'd made some choices that had ostracized her. And she came to the well when nobody else was around. She immediately acknowledges that she and Jesus shouldn't even be talking because Samaritans and Jews don't hold each other in high regard. And much of that is based on some long-standing assumptions that really weren't accurate. So they get into this conversation about water, which is really about the living water that is Jesus, and it ends up with her wrestling with her sins. Imagine that. Imagine getting to meet Jesus first and being loved for who you are, and then then wrestling with your sins as opposed to trying to have to clean up everything before you even get to show up in the first place. And the coolest thing about this is that's not the end of the story. She doesn't just wrestle with her life and then Jesus is like, okay, you're good, I'm good, and he walks away. That's, that's not happening. He helps her name the sin in her life and the pain that that's caused, and he leads her to this conversation about church, about worship together, and somewhere in the back of her mind, she's thought about it, I mean, the word wouldn't have been church that she would have used. It would have been synagogue. She's thought about it, but she's been told there's only one way to do it. And there's only one place to do it. And Jesus' response to her is, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But... The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. Go in spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth, not by force, not by guilt, but with an authentic, unbridled joy. And for some people, for some people, that comes in the form of a strong, robust liturgy and classical hymns of the faith. And then for other people, that comes with spontaneous dancing of children and sharing the word of God in a space that looks more like a living room than it does a church. And neither way is wrong if it is sincere and it comes from the heart. Well, By March of 2014, those prayers were very deep. The facts were pretty clear, but we still felt like we'd hit a wall. And then one day, out of nowhere, completely unexpected, comes a call into the office. What if it would be possible to try the 945 service again? Not the way that it was, but but a real, thought-out, prayed-out, well-prepared approach to this type of service. And the call was to provide the funds to redo this space so that we could give it another go. But I gotta tell you that one call cannot change it all. A church can physically build whatever it wants. It can install technology, it can put up signs, it can paint itself any color it wants. But when the rubber meets the road, a building is just a building and you can build whatever you want, but if you have nothing to offer people, what's the point? So there we were with this possibility. And at the same time, there I was as a Girl Scout troop leader. And you may think that those things are completely unrelated, but if you remember, the third step in aligning with God is to consider your circumstances. So one day, I found myself over at the Bishop Animal Shelter in the middle of a Girl Scout meeting, and I got into a conversation with a friend of mine who had four children. And somehow, we started talking about church and, and what barriers and challenges she had getting her family to church. And it was, it was things like this, things like making sure that everybody was appropriately dressed and fed and hair was brushed and teeth were brushed and everybody had shoes and that everybody could get to church on time and it was about getting to be with her kids in a worship service not having them sent somewhere else because all the parents we're all working all week long we're already away from our kids and she wanted to be with her kids and it was about solid teaching solid teaching because she realized that she could get her kids to find entertainment just about anywhere and what she needed from the church was a foundation that they would know and grow with god And as she was talking, I I could start to see it. I could start to see what a worship service like that might look like. Well, by May, things were really starting to take shape, and the session was on board, and we decided to go and beg, go and beg some of the folks in our traditional service to help us seed the well. And, And you have to know that this was an enormous ask. Because, because we didn't know exactly what it was going to be like. And the only thing, the only thing that I could promise them was that there would never be any drums. That was it. <laughs> that was the only solid thing I could promise. And while we were trying to get things uh, situated internally, I went back to the Girl Scout troop and I started inviting people. So while we were doing all that we could and things, things were starting to get really real, We felt like God was leading this. The whole effort had been covered in prayer. The circumstances were lining up. But I got to tell you that after the epic failure of 945, I was still pretty faint-hearted. And then one day, Sung called the office. He had been out of the loop in all of this because he had gone to go serve as an interim pastor out on a church in the island. And they had been considering him for the permanent position Well, with four weeks to go to the launch of the well, they gave him two weeks' notice that they were going in a different direction and his time out there was coming to an end. God opened up a door that Paul and I had been pushing on with great concern because we needed a strong worship leader. And with two weeks to go, Sung showed up. So on October 6th of 2014, 75 people gathered in this room and the well was born. And it changed our church. Not just this service, but it changed the whole church. And I wanna be clear about something. The well did something beyond creating an alternative service. It led us to a place of three unique services. The chapel came about because we needed a more traditional early service, if the current one was gonna give way to the well. And because of that, we're now the only church in town that offers three very unique and distinctive services. The well also did something else, it opened up opportunities to connect generations outside of worship. But of all the things that came about in the last five years, the biggest one is this. All across the church, doesn't matter which service you go to, we are slowly living out the gospel by being a church that continually gives itself up for the sake of the gospel so that we can remove barriers, and we can welcome everybody to worship, even those who were convinced that they were never meant to be a part of a community of faith. Every now and again, somebody will ask me about the well, and I'll start talking, and they'll say, oh, oh, it's, it's your contemporary service. And I will say, no, no, it's the church. And they'll say, well, what about your traditional service? And I will say, yes, that is the church too. And the chapel, also the church. And of course, they look at me like I'm insane, but have you ever tried explaining the well to somebody? And I will say to them, I am the pastor of one church with three unique worship services, but no matter which one you go to, for whatever reason you choose to go to it, I pray that across the life of the church, you find us to be a place of community and hospitality and joy. We tried it our way seven years ago but it wasn't until we started moving at God's sacred pace that this church changed direction and laid the foundation for the future and just as we're now just starting to catch our breath from running hard after Jesus we have found ourselves having grown so much that we're going to have to go and renovate to make more space for what God is doing in this place And I know, I know that that can make some folks anxious and it can make us want to speed up and make some really rash decisions because we're worried. The one thing that this church learned from the failure of the 945 service is if we will just slow down and consult with Jesus, gather our facts, consider our circumstances, then five years from now, we will be a stronger, healthier, more spirit-filled church than we are even today. And so as exciting as it is, and as as fast as we all want to go, we got to do this at God's sacred pace. I hope you're going to do it with us. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this day. We have a lot of reasons to celebrate, but remind us always that where we are today came because we had to slow down. We had to confess. We had to be humble. We had to rely on you fully. And as we get ready for this new chapter in the life of our church, one that comes with some pretty major decisions and sacrifices on the part of everybody, we pray, Lord, that you're going to lead us. Not at the speed that we want to go, that we dream about going, but at your speed, because we know that when we go at your speed. Good things happen. In your name we pray. Amen.